0: We continue in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. We're closing out chapter 2. Paul is writing and he says, therefore, and we talked about that, everything preceding up to this point, he's referring to, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions of their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. Amazing phrase. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? As though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence." There is a book that you can buy on Amazon called Winning by Intimidation. And it teaches you how to to intimidate to achieve your goals. One example that they give is, uh, the author says, if you're in any kind of business, if you're in any kind of business, you want to pull off a big deal. Wherever you go to pull off that deal, whatever office, whatever building take two secretaries with you. Even if you have to hire them for a day and pay their airfare, take two secretaries uh, with you because if you've got two secretaries coming behind you with notepads, writing everything down, you say, you're an instant big shot. He says it doesn't matter whether you have anything to offer or whether you know anything, but the fact that you have two secretaries with you Taking down everything gives people the idea that you are successful, and you know what you're talking about. It's a form of intimidation, because they immediately feel inferior to you and to what you are saying, and therefore more liable to buy what you are selling. Now that's a worldly illustration of how to intimidate people, and I'm not condoning that, but it's there. But I believe the reason that God put this short letter to the Colossians in his word was because he knew that this sort of thing was going to afflict the church all down through the centuries. Just as Paul was concerned about the intimidation going on with the believers in the town of Colossae, God's church was going to face intimidation on all levels and then some. Today, it's succumbing to name-calling. That's been going on for years. You've heard them all. Hypocrites, bigots, racists, white supremacists, terrorists, Christian supremacists, white nationalists. It's all out there. And these words have become so prevalent and so ingrained that people begin to believe it. Did you know that a political activist group sent our president, a 28-page list of recommendations at the time of his inauguration that he end any Christian consideration on policy decisions in America. In the document, they use the term Christian nationalists and white supremacists. They say that we should be considered a national security threat by the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security. I did some research. I found that 28 page document. If you want it sometime, I've got it. What's concerning is that 14 of our sitting congressional representatives have signed their name to it. What's even worse is that there are a lot of Christians who have bought into a lot of this rhetoric and have come to believe that, yeah, the church is all that. And if you try to argue against it, in their mind you're even more that because you don't even know that you're all that. And what's even worse, nothing worse. (laughs) Folks, I believe God knew right from the get-go that if his church didn't stand firm on Jesus Christ, And on his word, she would become intimidated into weakness, apathy, and ineffectiveness. It sounds like the goal of our enemy, Satan, does it not? And unfortunately, we, the church, are allowing him, Satan, to do a good job at that. the most recent issue of the Alliance Life magazine, I talked about it, I think, last week, this one here, there's an article just on the inside cover, P- Patty actually sh- showed it to me, it's written by one of our international workers, her name is Thai King, missionary to Thailand, but they, she was uh, going to a conference in, uh, in Vietnam, and she writes this, Recently, I was privileged to travel to Vietnam and teach at a discipleship center that is training pastors from the hill tribes. The ministry is marked by great risk, bountiful spiritual fruit, and miraculous provision. Our Vietnamese sister who oversees this ministry pointedly said to me, What has happened to the church in America? You have fallen asleep. I think the church in America has been lulled to sleep with complacency. But even more than that, the church has succumbed to the intimidation of the world. We have, to a certain extent, gone along with the human philosophies of the world and their fine, uh, fine-sounding arguments, all in the name of love and tolerance and, and trying not to be offensive. And we've lost the power and effectiveness of the church of Jesus Christ. I just read an article from Epic Times this week entitled, Church of England to Consider Gender Neutral God. And they write The Church of England is considering referring to God in non gendered terms during services. Breaking with centuries of tradition, bishops have announced they are launching a major, quote, project on gendered language this spring. It may suggest a priest stop using the male pronouns he and him when referring to God in some prayers, or even that they can drop the famous phrase our Father from the start of the Lord's Prayer. It goes on to say, however, some traditionalists say this goes too far and fear that the proposed introduction of gender neutral language is just another example of the church attempting to boost dwindling congregations as young people increasingly stay away. Paul was warning the Colossians and the churches down through the churches, uh, centuries, excuse me, do not be intimidated. Stand fast on Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Stand fast on his supremacy over everything and the fact that he has provided a completeness that cannot be rivaled and to which nothing can be added. The Colossians were being overtly and strongly intimidated. Remember, this, this whole Jesus thing was, was all kind of new at that point. Churches were a new phenomena. Following Jesus from di- was different from the way it's always been. So it's understandable that they, they may have been a little bit more hesitant about this new belief of theirs because they, they really hadn't had a lot of years seeing the power of God working in their lives. Remember also that these false teachers didn't have false teacher (laughs) written across their foreheads. They were sharing some truly amazing things that sounded very spiritual. And the Colossians were beginning to feel like spiritually they're being left out of something. They're they're missing something. And and they were somehow inadequate, like having Jesus Christ wasn't enough. And so Paul writes this letter to them telling them that Christ is all they need. And the crux of the whole letter, we've mentioned this before, is verse 10 of chapter 2, where he says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head. We are complete in Christ, and that's his point here. There isn't anything lacking, there isn't any insufficiency, and Paul dealt with four main areas that were behind these false teachers which were human philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Now, we've already looked some at the human philosophy aspect, which I would contend as being one of the most dangerous aspects today. The heretics of the day were saying, you need Christ plus human wisdom, you need Christ plus human philosophy, and Paul says, you need Christ plus nothing, Today we're saying you need Christ plus science. You need Christ plus being politically correct. Actually, today what they're trying to do to make us believe that all you need is our science and our philosophy, just just take Christ out of the whole equation completely. So we become so intimidated that we'll talk about God, but we have a hard time talking about Jesus. Now there's an old hymn that perhaps we need to sing more often it says, let's talk about Jesus. The King of kings is he, the Lord of Lords supreme through all eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. Folks, we need to talk about Jesus more. When was the last time we talked to somebody about Jesus using Jesus' name? Human philosophy, everything but Jesus. I mean, you know, church people, just a bunch of ignorant Christians anyway, right? All they know is the Bible. That's all that old stuff. They know nothing about real life. Really? First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, "...his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to what? Pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence." My question to believers is, do we really believe that? Beware of human philosophy. Secondly, beware of legalism, Christ plus works of righteousness. Notice again verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Paul says to these Colossian Christians, look, these People are trying to intimidate you with legalism. They're trying to judge you on what you eat, what you drink, whether you attend the Passover or any of those other festivals. It's not enough to believe in Christ. Salvation and spirituality, they were saying, is based on Christ plus doing certain things. Hence the word legalism. And legalism has crept into many churches, and once it's installed, it's really hard to come out from under it. I served in a church of the youth pastor in western Pennsylvania many years ago, where legalism was rampant as a form of spirituality. If we served there, one of the first things we were told was that we would not be able to attend movies in theaters. That's taboo. Eating or drinking, I'm not talking alcohol, Eating, drink, any kind of eating or drinking was not allowed in the sanctuary, okay, I, I, I get that, spills, or any room that was physically part of the church building, because that would be disrespectful. And we had a basement, we, we had two floors of classrooms, no eating, because they all, they all were part of the building that contained the sanctuary. A time came when the church was growing, and uh, now for the eating and building, we had a large fellowship hall divided by a driveway in the back of the church, that was where the kitchen was, all the eating and activities and things were done over there. The church began to grow, and we needed some more classrooms, and I suggested the wing of the classrooms went towards the fellowship hall. If we built just over the top from the second floor over to the fellowship hall, we could get four more classrooms in there very, very easily. And that was quickly shot down. The reason? Well, the fellowship hall with the kitchen and food would then be touching the building that had the sanctuary. No joke. Legalism. Now, to be fair, that was 40 years ago. I, I googled the church. That building is connected to the fellowship hall now. Okay, so they've, they've come along, which is wonderful. But you see, legalism is defining your spirituality by man-made rules, things that may even sound spiritual, but end up being binding or enslaving. But obeying God's rules, that's true obedience, and it almost sounds counterintuitive, but obedience to God actually gives us freedom in Christ. We've had controversies in the church over the misunderstanding of this concept where people strongly felt that obedience e- equals legalism, that preaching obedience was preaching legalism. But these two topics are actually very opposite. Well, how does that work? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, which we looked at last week briefly, is actually an excellent example It says, walk by the Spirit. That's God's command for us to obey. That's what he wants us to be doing. And then what are the results? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Isn't it amazing how that works? Focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who provides the fullness and completeness. That's what obedience to God looks like. You see, if we focus on trying not to do what is displeasing to God, then we're right back to our own efforts, our own strength, our own willpower, all of which fails us. But if we're walking in the Spirit, He'll be the one to empower that new nature He has given to us and which is now ours. So Paul, writing to believers, says to the Colossians, don't be lured, don't be tricked, don't let anybody make a spiritual judgment about you based on your external behavior. Don't let anybody evaluate your spirituality on that basis. Unfortunately, there will always be folks (laughs) that'll do that. People who want to judge everybody's spirituality by what they do or don't do externally. How they eat, what they eat, how they drink, what they drink, whether they keep all the Christian routines, whether they appear to be Christians on the outside. And that's not what the issue is. The issue is the heart. Mark chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes from the person that defiles them. That's what God looks at. He's looking at the heart. Now, let me add a footnote here. There are some people who can make me restrict my liberty. And at times, I need to do that. And we know who that is. They are the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ that Paul talks about. If we're going to be a hindrance to them, we shouldn't be doing even if we don't feel that there's anything wrong with it. Or people that I might offend whom I'm trying to reach out to and uh, to have an opportunity to share Christ with. But again, they are not the false teachers. I don't need to restrict my liberty for the sake of false teachers. Back Thanksgiving time, we had our friend from India, Christine, come and visit us over that weekend. And it just dawned on me, because I had never asked her or her parents about their dietary habits from India, and so I I called her and says, hey, um, do you eat beef or are you strictly chicken? I knew they ate chicken, a lot of Indians would do that, but they won't touch beef, we would have curtailed our menu so as not to offend her or cause confusion in in her. It turns out she loves burgers, so no, no problem there. When we were in India, we learned people's religious customs, So, we would not offend or hinder the building of relationships in order to share the gospel. This included dress code, learning how to bake without eggs, or eating vegetarian. I always thought if I was going to go vegetarian, I'm going to go Indian vegetarian. They've got amazing vegetarian food. But the reason Paul is hitting this so hard is because he knows that Satan is trying to get your focus off of Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because Christ defeated him. He's saying, stop looking at Jesus. And he knows that we have the same victory over him in Christ. So if if he can get our minds off of Christ and onto works, we're stepping back into his domain where he will regain some influence over us and at the same time make us ineffective. Every false religion in the world says you get saved by works. Every single one. Christianity is the only system, if you will, of religion in the entire world that is purely a system of grace. Why? Because Satan counterfeits, counterfeits it, and in every single counterfeit, the only way you can counterfeit grace is by works. And they all come out the same. Yeah, but Pastor, what about all those laws and requirements in the Old Testament? They're in the Bible. Yes, but look at verse 17 there in Colossians 2. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All these rules and all these legalistic things were just shadows. A shadow just anticipated the arrival of somebody and that somebody is here. And we don't need the shadow anymore. Paul says, get out of the shadows. The reality is here. Live in the light of Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, Why regard as indispensable ordinances certain things relative to eating when the one foreshadowed by Israel's manna is offering himself as a true bread of life? How can the observance of Passover be considered a means to spiritual perfection when our Passover lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed already to perfect the saints? What justification could there be for demanding Gentile converts to observe the law of the Jewish Sabbath when the bringer of eternal rest has already granted us that? Human philosophy, legalism. And the third heresy that Paul deals with is mysticism. I looked up mysticism, excuse me, mysticism in the dictionary and here's what it says. Mysticism is proper up popularly known as becoming one with God or the absolute, but may refer to any kind of ecstasy or altered state of consciousness which is given a religious or spiritual meaning. This us do what Paul says in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. The heretics were claiming that they were so much greater spiritually because they had a special knowledge. They had these special experiences, contact with higher beings, uh, spirits, and angels. The Expositor's Bible Commentary explains that Paul's use of the phrase worship of angels they say it's an allusion to the deference the heretical teachers paid to the hierarchy of spirit beings who, in their system, filled the whole universe. And so, in order to get to God, you had to go through all these spiritual beings. This is what the heretics were claiming. They were saying we have a higher and a broader and a deeper and greater and mystical union with God. We've attained a humility and a piety, and they seem to be very proud about that. That, that is unlike anyone we, we have, you have experienced. We've, we've connected ourselves with the, with the spirits and the angels. We've climbed that ladder to the presence of the one true deity. And you need to do the same thing. Paul is saying don't be intimidated by people claiming to have, have had special spiritual revelations or emotional experiences and therefore somehow you're not good enough. Paul says when that starts happening, your focus has come off of Christ. They have lost connection with the head, is how he puts it. Other things become more important than Christ. Emotionalism supersedes truth. It happens within churches as well. When I was a youth pastor, the senior pastor spoke to me a number of times of his experience of receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit. Apparently it was an amazing, ecstatic, emotional experience for him. A, a light flooded his office, he fell on his knees, and he was just absolutely overwhelmed with the presence of God. And I'm not discounting that. But in his mind, because that's how it happened for him, that's how it should happen for everybody. And that's intimidating. Intimidating. I had not had that experience. Paul is saying, don't seek the emotional experience. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It's not wrong to have an emotional experience. If you have that, wonderful. But don't judge others for not being as emotional as you are. Paul says, do not let anyone delight who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Huh. Isn't that interesting? At first glance, it almost looks like Paul is saying that there may be a possibility of being disqualified from salvation. Who can disqualify you? Nobody, thank you. Not even God. Have you thought about that? Why? Because God promised to keep you. He's not going to disqualify you. And His salvation is complete His forgiveness is complete. His victory for us is complete. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's pretty definitive. So what's Paul saying here? When he says, Do not let anyone disqualify you. It's another way of saying, and don't let anyone intimidate you into believing you're not saved or that you can be disqualified by what you do or don't do or by what experience you've had or not had. I find it interesting there in that same verse. Paul says, don't let anyone who delights (laughs) in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. These people were so proud of their humility You know, humility is a really tricky thing, isn't it? We are told to be humble. Carolyn Fry uh, wrote a lot of poems, and one of her poems wrote about this topic. She says, Humility, the sweetest, loveliest flower that blossomed in Eden, and the first to die, has rarely bloomed since on mortal soil. Is so frail, so delicate a thing, "'Tis gone if it but look upon itself. And he who ventures to esteem it his proves by that single thought he has it not.'" Isn't that good? (laughs) Paul was warning them to not be taken in by their false humility. Their supposed humility was nothing but ugly pride. And then the fourth thing which um, they tried to intimidate believers by was asceticism. What in the world is that? Again, looked it up. The principles and practices of extreme self-denial and austerity. The doctrine that the ascetic life releases the soul from bondage to the body and permits union with the divine. These are people who would say that the only true spirituality comes in absolute self-denial. The only truly spiritual people, they would say, are the people who have nothing who sell everything and live in absolute, abject poverty. Look at verse 20 and 21 there in Colossians 2. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's saying that if our old self, ruled by the flesh, by the cravings of sinful desires, has been put off, why are we going back to trying to follow the rules And don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Those should no longer be a thing for us if we're walking in the Spirit. He goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. It came to my mind uh, just now that when, when I remember when I was a kid in India, we would see Hindu holy men that would be rolling for days and miles to get to a special holy place, showing how holy they were, and their bodies would be torn and bleeding. All kinds of things that they did, trying to gain favor. Paul says by doing or not doing things, we end up trying to show others or perhaps to prove to others that we're really spiritual. We're right back to the outward appearances concerned about what others think. What should we be concerned about? About what God thinks. And he sees the heart. Paul says at the end of verse 23, all that other stuff, all that legalism stuff, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence why because those become our efforts in trying to be holy it's another form of spiritual intimidation making you feel guilty or inferior if if you have not sold all your position, possessions and given everything away to the poor and live like a monk up in the hills somewhere god doesn't expect all of us to live in poverty If that's what God has called you to, wonderful. And He'll give you the power and He'll give you the grace to do that. But if God chooses to give you things like He's given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and remember Job, all that God gave to Job, and decides He wants to bless you with that, that too is wonderful. But at the same time, we need to remember that to those whom much is given, much is going to be required. Giving up stuff is all external. If the Lord has asked you to do that, absolutely. Paul says they lack any value in retaining sensual, restraining, excuse me, sensual indulgence. Have you ever noticed that the more you think about not doing something, the more you think about it and want to do it even more? (laughs) Paul is saying, get your mind off of eating that piece of chocolate cake or whatever other indulging desires you may have and get your mind back on Christ where it belongs because he is the one who fulfills. One one commentator remarked that the basic truth of Christianity is Christ. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all. Christ is God. Christ is Savior Christ can save, Christ can redeem, Christ is everything you need, and his word is truth, and his word can lead you into all truth. Can we stand on that and that alone? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. My comforter, my all in all. That's the fullness of Christ, the completeness of Christ that we have here in the love of Christ. I stand. Father, I pray that you'd help us to stand. And to stand firm and not be moved. And that everything that comes our way, we would realize. That that's just stuff. Satan's trying to distract us. Straighten, Satan is trying to get, a, get our minds off of Christ and off of what his truth is in your word. I pray, Father, that you would help us to focus on your word and live accordingly and not be ashamed to live our freedom. Renew our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.